And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg, and Bill Newman's chair is empty today, but he'll be back in studio with us, thankfully, tomorrow. This is our monthly visit with Senator Paul Mark, who, uh, well, he's been a busy senator, and I think it's just going to get even busier in the Senate these days. Uh, Welcome, Paul Mark, and thank you for joining us. Hey, always good to be here. Well, I love it. So... There's a confusing process, and it results in committees of the Senate entertaining various proposals, various bills, um, and deciding which ones ought to become law or which portions of ones ought to become law. There are deadlines. Could you explain that process to us and where we are in that process right now? Yeah, so uh, in the first year of the session, you're supposed to file all your bills. So last year, the, the, the odd-numbered year. You're supposed to file all your bills within about two weeks of being sworn in, and those bills are then taken, and you divide them up according to subject matter. And so we have over 30 joint committees that hear bills based on subject matter, and uh, the idea being, hopefully, that the people who end up on the committees will either be experts in that subject matter or at least will develop an expertise as they spend the, the two-year session or longer. And I, I just want to interview by yeah. joint committees. You mean House and Senate? House and Senate. Yeah, yep. exactly. We have we have more joint committees than I think any other state in the country. Uh, so so then you you have that process where the bills are filed, they're assigned to the committees, and then in theory the committees could just never do anything. Right? They they could never meet. They could never hear any bills. Uh, they could never release any work product. And so to stop that, the joint rules of the House and Senate call for uh, Rule Ten, Joint Rule Ten which uh, says that there's a deadline, and it's, 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 uh, it's this week. It's, it's mid, early to mid-February that by this reporting date, every committee has to take an action on the bills before it. And that deadline actually moved up by a month. And our, our, former, state, uh, our former Senate President, Stan Rosenberg, was a giant advocate for that, for getting the committees to report a little earlier in order to give both the House and Senate a little more time to potentially pass bills in their own chambers, get them passed in both chambers, and eventually become law. And so the committees this week have to decide, through the membership of each committee, do you want a bill to move forward favorably? Do you want a bill to be given an unfavorable report? Should a bill be sent to study for a little more work, a little more uh, maybe redrafting, that kind of thing in the future? Or do you want to extend the bill? So that's that's possible, but both the House and the Senate as a whole have to agree for an extension. And so, <coughs> excuse me, in, on the committee I chair, Tourism, Arts, and Cultural Development, we have like 34 bills, and they're mostly non-controversial. And so committee members talked, and, and, and myself and the House committee chair, who's who happens to be Representative Mindy Dahm and Amherst, another local person, you know, we got together, we discussed what advocacy we had heard, who who made a pitch for what, why, what the impacts could be. And we all but two bills we were able to come to some decision on. And at the same time, I serve on seven other committees, and so it's been interesting. There's been a lot of polling. We get we get electronic polls sent around where we are asked to vote, and on some of them there's like five bills, on some of them there's 80. And you got to kind of do a little quick homework and, 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 and make sure that you agree with what the chairs have recommended. And if you don't like what they're recommending, then uh, I think in the House you can reserve your rights. 
and that just means I'll, I'll, I'm not making a decision right now. Or you can vote no. Uh, you can vote in the negative. Well, you, Senator Pomark, you, you're on a, mm-hmm. some pretty impressive committees. You're a vice chair of the Joint Committee on Bonding and Capital mm-hmm. Expenditures and State Assets. You're also a vice chair on the Joint Committee on Transportation. There's a lot of controversy. Well, I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. There are legitimately things that have to be decided that are not easy decisions in committees of that nature. And so uh, how much, how many bills are going to come out of those committees where after polling, there's a sufficient number of people in support of putting a bill forward yeah. and reporting it out favorably? So it's, it's, it's funny, because you mentioned bonding. We're having a hearing today at 1 because we have this IT tech bond bill that the governor proposed, and it is before us. And we're trying to get it. Uh, we're trying to get it moved forward before the deadline tomorrow. So we're going to have a hearing today. It was filed late, and uh, I think that will move along pretty quickly. Uh, other than that, bonding doesn't have many bills at the moment. The housing bond will eventually come there. The transportation bond will eventually come there. Uh, but on uh, on transportation, yeah, we've. I think we just had the third poll in the last two weeks, and uh, a, a bill I was really happy to see come out was a bill about forming an interstate compact with Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. And the idea of that, and for people listening that don't know what an interstate compact is, an interstate, interstate compact is like an official agreement between multiple states to allow them to carry on functions jointly, and they generally have to be approved by Congress. So if you've ever taken the train down to New York City and you got on, well, maybe you even got in on it, got on in the valley or you got on down in new haven and then the train continues into new york there's an interstate com- compact that allows that to happen for the states to cooperate like that and have a, a multi-state rail authority and so uh we're trying to do that now that's that's a bill uh, myself and then another local representative Lindy, Lindsay sabadosa that uh we've we've sponsored to try to encourage better rail service on the whole corridor north and south and east to west and uh by chance that was kind of highlighted uh the Governor, I don't know if she's officially announced it or not, and I don't know who the person is, but I was told yesterday that they're going to appoint a Western Massachusetts rail director. So that's kind of exciting for the Whoa, area. I did not know that. That is terrific. Yeah, I, I, I might have just broken this. I don't know if it was embargoed. Sorry. <laughs> hey, you heard it here first. It's a scoop, Dan. We got a scoop. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Senator Palmark. So, so, so the committees are, the deadline is tomorrow to report out whatever they want to report out and what bills should be moving forward will be determined. But how does that, I know that the budget season is just beginning when we decide, well, what the next fiscal year's budget is going to look like. How do you decide which bills you want to move forward without first having concrete arms around what the budget's going to look like? Yeah, I know that's a, that's a really good point. So you, you, some bills are just policy, uh, and I don't mean to say it like policy doesn't matter, but sometimes some bills are exclusively policy, meaning there's not always a fiscal component, although most of the bills that move forward now go to either House or Senate Ways and Means, which is the committee that is charged with overseeing the money. Um, but yeah, so so that's an important tie-in because you have this joint rule 10 day, you have the committees making their reports this week, and then you have the budget process really starting to ramp up. And I believe the Ways and Means Committee, having now received the initial proposal from the governor, is uh, starting their series of hearings. And they, they'll they have hearings all over the state. I, I imagine one will be in in, uh, in the Valley area, probably, uh, where I know uh, Senator Comerford is, is a member of, the, of that committee. So I imagine she'll probably host something locally. Uh, and I remember 
Steve Kulik used to host something either at UMass or, or, or GCC uh, on a pretty regular basis, which is normal. They're going to have like 12 hearings. But so then when we get through the budget into, into April and into May in the Senate, um, we should have a pretty clear picture of what we think the rest of this fiscal year, how it's going to end, and what the next fiscal year looks like. And so then as these bills that have come out of committee are alive and either having already been passed by one chamber or potentially being passed by one or both chambers, you, you know what that fiscal impact uh, can be. And, and something that we're really watching right now for the first time in quite a while is uh, revenue revenue coming in much, much shorter than expected. And um, unfortunately, we once again missed the benchmark, it looks like, in January. So there was about a $700 to billion dollar uh, projected shortfall by the governor, and she took action unilaterally to close that shortfall. And now it looks like maybe we're down another two hundred million. So that's that's not great. And the and the most troubling part of it is the uncertainty because there's not something anyone is pointing to and saying, "Well, a factory closed and all these jobs left town," which thank God that isn't what happened. But there's nothing like concrete to look at. It's it, it's just kind of a kind of a general unknown <laughs> well, what, what what's your best guess from your perch as senator Polmark? that what's your best guess of why yeah. there is a revenue shortfall here in massachusetts well i definitely think one factor is when governor baker was in there was that 63f law that was triggered for the first time since the 80s and there's some dispute and i'm on the dispute of I think he did it on purpose. <laughs> I'm on the side of the dispute where I suspect he did it on purpose, that the way things were accounted for and the way revenue was balanced and, and credited and, and, and moved in and out of accounts kind of triggered the the give back intentionally. And then what ended up happening was $3 billion that was some of it projected for the rainy day phone, some of it projected for programming, some of it projected for other tax cuts and other tax credits that were going to happen and economic development bill items all evaporated overnight. And so when you suddenly have a structural $2 billion missing from what was expected, um, that, that can, that can have an impact. And I, I, I definitely think that is a factor. I think another factor is we've been getting a lot of money from Washington and maybe the projections were a little, little rosy that, revenue increases would somehow be sustainable and, and grow fast enough to match the money we were getting into Washington as it evaporated. And that hasn't seemed to have come true. Um, but other than that, I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's like you look at maybe the changing way people buy things, the changing way people work. And if it, if it continues, it's something we're going to have to, we're going to have to evaluate what to do moving forward because we have to have a balanced budget in Massachusetts. Right, we're required to have a balanced budget, and we had um, we had but uh, we have a budget of about fifty six billion dollars, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, hey, if we fall short by two billion dollars, that's a that's a really serious shortfall. It is, and we're in we're in good, sound fiscal shape in general, in a big picture sense. We still have eight billion dollars in a stabilization fund, and. The first billion dollars the governor was able to balance 
without any cuts to like real direct services that people need day to day. It's just if it continues, then yeah, then there's 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 things to think about. And in her state of the Commonwealth speech and in the budget she proposed, the governor has some really great and some really ambitious ideas. But if the revenue is not there to make them happen, then that's where what you mentioned, Buzz, is really important. Like policy can be really great. Policy of making sure gateway city students have access to preschool and, and early reading and early learning. I think that's that's awesome. Pittsfield is in my district. Pittsfield would love that and should have that, as should the other communities at some point. Uh, but if we can't fund it, then <laughs> it becomes kind of kind of a good idea and, and, and maybe less uh, a success story. And uh, one other, I know it's a, it's a long conversation, but give us, since you mentioned it mm-hmm. twice, when you say stabilization funds, you, you mentioned rainy day funds and you mentioned stabilization. What is that? Yeah, so, so boy, I forget exactly what year. I feel like right around uh, 2000, 2002, that, that range, definitely before I was in office, uh, the, the legislature came up with an idea that there should be, when, 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 when revenue is coming in strong, we should be able to bank some of it. We should be able to save some of it. And rainy day fund stabilization account, same. It is the same thing. It's just two different words for the same thing. And it's at, I think, the highest level in history. And the problem becomes when I ask my chair ways and means, we have $8 billion. Why are we worried about a billion dollar shortfall? I, I, I see, I, I don't think there's a problem with having $7 billion. It, it then becomes a question of, does it change our bond rating? Is the problem going to be more serious? Is it is it actually raining, or is it just like a little drizzly out and we can wait through? You know? Nice metaphor, Senator Palmer. <laughs> so I know I know that in, in in a locality like mine, in a in a municipality, that to uh, to put money into stabilization or to remove it from stabilization requires a supermajority vote. Uh, is that the case in the Senate uh, or the in the legislature? Where okay. We think it's raining enough. It's not just drizzling. Does that require a supermajority to pull money out of stabilization and put it into the budget? Not outright. And we can we can do it through a simple majority, but then the problem becomes depending on the governor. If if if, if the governor is against the idea, then yeah, you need a supermajority because you get it. You have to be able to override the governor. Um, but but no, de uh, jure, no. We, we we just have to have a uh, a simple majority. But there's also a lot of automatic investments and and deposits that happen by law so even though with a majority vote we can put more money into it uh every year i i think that was one of the ways she was she's looking to balance next year's budget is instead of an automatic like 600 million going into the rainy day fund she's going to use it on on different programming and then the fair share amendment is uh, already proving its worth because it's preserving some of the educational programs and, and some of the transportation programs and uh, I hope gets a lot of positive attention because it, it is doing exactly what it was functioned uh, intended to do. Exactly. To, to benefit both education and transportation. We are talking to Senator Paul Mark. When we come back, there was a big vote on a gun bill that just passed the Senate recently. And, um, uh, Hey, I think that's a bill that a lot of people are looking at um, and want to talk about. We'll be back with Senator Paul Mark right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
And we are back continuing our conversation with Senator Paul Mark. And I just want to point out, when uh, Paul Mark is on the phone with us, he's usually, he is the most traveled of all our legislators. He has 57 different municipalities that he represents, and he has to travel all over uh, uh, Western Massachusetts in order to visit uh, with his constituents. Um, and I know that it's always difficult. He's on his way to Boston. He has to pull over and find a good place to talk to us. So, Paul Mark, we are always appreciative. I have to interrupt our conversation. I had just asked you, teasing before we went to break, about the gun bill that passed so enormously. Uh, it, it, I think it was 37 to 3 in the in the Senate, but I just got hot off the presses. Dan, you just reported to us that what we were talking with John Pucci about earlier. Well, we have some big news. Yes, being reported is that Trump does not have presidential immunity in the January 6th case, the federal appeals court rules. And it's this is the case in front of the D.C. Circuit. And they basically said, no, you do not have presidential immunity. Right. So the federal insurrection case um, was bumped up. Um, to the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals because of Trump's contention that as president of the United States, he has absolute immunity from prosecution. There was this three-judge panel, as is always the case at circuit courts, usually the vast majority of cases. Um, But it it seems like, if I could just add, the Trump's defense team will then uh, appeal this to the Supreme Court directly. Well, no, not directly. They'll they'll appeal for an en banc, which is the full 11-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and then from there, it's to the United States Supreme Supreme Court. Court. I have to ask you, Senator Paul Mark, you are an attorney, and uh, you have an opinion or two about politics. What do you think of this ruling that the president (laughs) does not have immunity? Well, I mean, first of all, he's not the president anymore, and second of all, if he engaged in a criminal action, I mean, it'd be one thing to say he shouldn't be prosecuted while sitting as president, because in theory... There could, there could be some kind of nefarious witch hunt that he claims is always happening, even though he's always doing something wrong and always in trouble. But I think, <laughs> uh, I, I think this sounds pretty accurate, that no, you're, you're out of office now. So uh, if you believe in the system, and as former president of the United States, you would like to think, having sworn an oath to the Constitution, that you believe in justice, you believe in answering to charges, and if you're, if you're not guilty, that you'll certainly be exonerated. Uh, I think he should be really happy to, 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 to have his day in court. He, he seemed to enjoy it a lot in the civil trial that he lost. <laughs> oh, he seemed to be having a great time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I by the way, uh, I grew up with this this uh these commercials about Heinz 57, which I've now redubbed to um to say Mark's 57 because you have 57 <laughs> municipalities. And I think I should just call this Trump's 91 because there's 91 <laughs> counts against Donald Trump. <laughs> He's better than Baskin-Robbins. <laughs> but this whole immunity question, I suppose, let's get serious for one minute. We were talking to John Pucci, and, and um, there are qualified immunities granted to, well, police officers. People argue whether that should be the case, but certainly for prosecutors and um, indeed for legislators here in Massachusetts. We have a statutory immunity that's granted to people like you. If I sue you because a, a vote that you took is not in my interest, even if it's not in my interest and it will render me some financial harm or other harm, I cannot sue you. You have a qualified immunity because we don't want you to be hampered in the execution of your duties by the threat of a possible lawsuit. So how does that not translate to the president? Yeah, I know. I think it is. It's a matter of 
again, if, if it's for a politically motivated person to hamper the execution of your duties is one thing. Or if he was making a, if you're making a purely political speech, so yeah, he gets up and he says some really offensive things and, and he says a lot of policy things I don't like. Uh, but unfortunately, for better or for worse, he, he, he certainly has that right and should never be prosecuted for that, for saying something that, that, that someone else just doesn't like. I mean, I think it was Justice Scalia who said, I can't imagine a situation where someone would burn the American flag because they thought the American, because they thought the government was doing a good job. <laughs> and so yeah. he, he wrote the opinion saying, no, that's First Amendment speech. And as uh, detestable as it might be, despicable as it might be, it, it's, it's legal. Uh, but you're making me think, too, in the, in the House of Representatives under the Massachusetts Constitution, a member of the House of Representatives traveling to or from a vote in the state house is immune from being stopped, and that's even if you did commit murder. You have, or at least if you're being <laughs> if you're being accused of committing murder, because they can't allow like a false charge from a naughty governor uh, to stop you from going in and taking an action contrary to that governor or whatever it might be. Uh, the Senate does not have that same thing. I'm disappointed to read. <laughs> yeah. So instead of a, when, when Trump said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, you could shoot somebody on Beacon Street if you're a House of Representatives. Well, but you can still be charged later, you know. Um, I just really quickly before we we uh, have to go, this gun bill. There's a lot of important stuff in there, and a lot of people care very passionately about reasonable regulations for firearms. So, what say you about that? Yeah, I, I think this was a, this was a good bill. We kept a lot of things of constitutional concern out of the bill. Uh, we really focused on on, on gun gun. Uh, I'm sorry, we focused on ghost guns, which is a problem people are really worried about around the state. And in the end, it passed almost unanimously. The Republican leader joined the Democrats voting for it. So, um, I, I, I think I think if what the Senate passed was added to what are already the most effective and hopefully reasonable gun laws in the country, uh, I, I think we'd be in really good shape. But it'll go to a conference committee, and, and we'll see where that ends up. Well, Senator Paul Mark, good luck tomorrow when you're, you're, um, the committee you chair, the committees you vice chair, and the other committees in which you're a member have to uh, decide which bills to uh, report out favorably, and uh, we'll see what laws uh, might come as a result of that. Uh, as always, we appreciate very much not just the work you do in in the legislature, but the good work you do for your constituents and your appearance here on Talk the Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.